The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Douglas Gayton. He and his wife, Laura Howard, founded the Lexicon of Sustainability in 2009. That site has grown. He now has a lexicon of food, which we'll be talking about. But in a nutshell, the two are sharing the stories that explain sustainability and food via pop-up shows, street art, film, and online information platforms, as well as community outreach, with the understanding that words have power and power drives change. Douglas is an information architect, a filmmaker, photographer, and writer. He has created award-winning work at the boundaries of traditional and converging media since the early 90s. He is the director of Know Your Food. It's a series for PBS. He's the author of both Slow, Life in a Tuscan Town, and the recently released Local, The New Face of Food and Farming in America. Welcome, Douglas. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted that you're here because I have been an admirer of the lexicon of sustainability for a long time, and I am also very fond of words, which leads me to the lexicon term. Why did you choose it? Well, I think that people would be much more apt to change the way they eat or even the way they think about food if they knew what their food system was. And I actually think that begins with language. I think the problem that people have with climate change is that people inevitably had climate fatigue because they heard terms like carbon debt so many times that they finally, having never found what the actual meaning of it was, actually found an excuse to disengage. They had climate fatigue because the principles of climate change were never properly explained to them. I think that if we can explain to people how their food system works, if we can provide them with that lexicon, that collection of terms that are really expressing solutions for how to fix our food system, I think we'll see dramatic changes in what and how people eat. Well, you're certainly not alone, right? So the Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, said that words are loaded pistols, More recently, Eddie Ellis, who was the former Black Panther leader, said in a Sun Magazine interview, this is back in 2013, that to change public policy, we also have to change people's thinking, and to change their thinking, we have to change the language they use. So I think you are right in line with some of our strongest thinkers with regard to using words. But I want to know how somebody like yourself, who really went from being a very successful filmmaker and photographer, working in the media, what led you down this path for this kind of work? There were three events, I think I could say, that that led to my wife and I embarking on this project. The first was that I had spent 10 years living in Tuscany creating images to explain what slow food was. And the challenge I made for myself was I wanted to show how people lived in Italy and the principles and practices 
that led to what we call slow food. But I only wanted to photograph people who didn't know what slow food was in Italy. And that was a challenge I made. That journey really made me look at food totally differently, to realize that food and culture are really the same thing. You can't have one without the other. And about the same time that I was working on that project, my wife started a goat milk ice cream company. And we did that in the United States. We did that in Northern California. Really going through the journey of starting a food business and understanding how hard it is to communicate all those values and principles that go into your product made us realize, as we met other producers just like us, how hard it is to try to do something different, to try to do something which has values, and then try to explain those values to other people. The third thing that happened was after I finished my first book, I was in Washington, D.C. They gave me a dinner, and there were a lot of food policy people there. And one person who actually wrote food policy on Capitol Hill was talking about how far he had to drive in his car to get food, and he called that food miles. <laughs> and actually, food miles is the opposite. Food miles is how much distance food has to cover to reach your plate. And when I realized that a person who was actually writing food policy on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., didn't understand one of the most basic principles of how to make a more local and accountable food system, I realized somebody needs to explain what these words mean. And somebody needs to make it so that people can understand what this language is of sustainability, but also of, of a more reasonable, accountable, locally-based food system. Mm-hmm. Well, I looked up the term lexicon so that I could get my head around this word. And I really liked one definition which I found, which was simply the vocabulary of a person, language, or branch of knowledge. And that's going to assume that we all have the same connotation for words. And sometimes words can get tricky like that. So, for example, in some circles, if I said that I was an activist or an environmentalist, I would be welcomed with open arms. But in other circles, if I said I'm an activist, I work for the environment, I might be shunned and seen as a negative force in society. So how do you address words that could have different connotations? Well, I think we have access to a lot of information, and so you would think that's a great thing. And on one level, it is a great thing. But on a second level, we have this idea that we can get any piece of information we want immediately. So we have sites like Wikipedia that give us the illusion that something even complicated can be made very, very simple to understand. But the problem with Wikipedia is that Wikipedia offers up the concept that there's only one definition for something. In reality, a definition for something like grass-fed, for example, can change according to the context that it's used or the place in which that particular cattle are raised. What we find in sustainability is that you have to allow for multiple definitions for any term, A, because it's contextual, and B, because it's an evolving language, and we're constantly modifying, adding to, and changing our understanding of things as we put these ideas into use. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned Wikipedia, because I thought, in a way, the lexicon of sustainability is like Wikipedia in that you are defining and bringing in multiple voices to help define different words. Help me explain a little bit more about how the lexicon of sustainability differs from something like a website like Wikipedia. Sure. Well, first of all, to just give a quick explanation of our project, we have spent the past five years going around the United States 
asking experts to explain to us what they know in their own words, using their own language and terminology. We then ask them to explain, to define what those principles are. Because when, if an expert in raising poultry is going to talk to you about poultry, he's going to have a very specific collection of ideas and terms and principles that he uses. If somebody makes cheese or if somebody has a dairy or if, if somebody ferments and, and creates fermented products, they all have an area of expertise and they use a language when they talk amongst themselves to explain what they do. So what we did was we looked at our food system, we conducted literally hundreds and hundreds of interviews we all over the United States for five years and we assembled a lexicon, a collection of all the words that people talk about when they talk about food. We then did a peer review of those terms where we had other people give alternate definitions or modify those initial definitions. And then we brought in taxonomists who actually arranged all of these terms in a taxonomy, with a hierarchical taxonomy, so you could actually look and explore and investigate these terms. Now, the difference between our approach and something like Wikipedia is that we don't believe in anonymity. We think that people and their experience has value and meaning when you look at the definition of something. So Wikipedia is totally anonymous and it's totally collective. Ours is about individual experts explaining what they know in their own words. And in many cases, we make information artworks, that, which are graphical explanations of these principles, and even films as well, to further amplify and to really, really make clear what these principles are and how they're used. Yeah, and I want to just remind our listeners that the images that you have on this website are absolutely gorgeous. I almost think that the images, well, together with the words, are extremely powerful, but the images themselves tell a story about the words. And I think that that's where you've hit the nail on the head in terms of helping people understand these terms. Tell me a little bit about how you captured these photographs of these wonderful people and their work. Well, we've made literally hundreds of information artworks, which are actually photo collages that explain graphically a, at times, complicated principle. And these photo collages sometimes include up to 100 or even 200 photographs all collaged together to make an image, which sometimes can be 10 feet tall. The images are made working directly with the person who's the subject of the picture. And as anybody knows when they've been interviewed, it's often the case when you see it in print that the writer has truncated or misinterpreted what you were trying to say. And it's not unusual to only see a journalist get 25% of what you're actually trying to say to them actually in an article in which your ideas are expressed. And so we thought, what if we actually made these large images and then had the people that are in the image explain in their own words what it is that we're seeing? And so it's a really interesting process for us to go through when we make these images with our subjects. At times, it can take a month or even two months to complete a single image. And so we have a very large team who all work together on these images. We work on a farm near Petaluma, California, and we've made over 250 of these really graphically descriptive information artworks to explain many, many aspects of how our food system works, from traceability in fisheries in Hawaii to soil amendments in Delaware. 
to how farmers markets and EBT or SNAP works down in New Orleans, down in Louisiana. It's a very rich and deep dive into a lot of really important principles, all of which you can see at lexiconoffood.com. Right. Now, I have to ask you a little bit about your travels across the country because I, too, like enjoy traveling and meeting people who are producing food. And if you took the back roads, which I'm sure you did, you saw and visited places that did not have access to the kind of food that we would like everyone to enjoy. So tell me how you dealt with some of those situations where people would have to travel many miles to get something decent and perhaps not have anything organic, let alone grass-fed, for hundreds of miles away. There's a number of different ways I can answer that. On one level, I could say that people always ask me where the center of our new food movement is, and I always say that it's not Brooklyn or Berkeley. It's all of those places in between because I'm constantly amazed wherever I go to find exploding locally-based food movements that really prove that people aren't waiting for the USDA or the FDA to fix their food system, that communities are taking it upon themselves to rebuild all that local infrastructure. So on one level, it's really, really powerful. It's really amazing. On another level, those challenges do remain. I remember a year ago, I was in Iowa making images, and I was talking to local food producers, and they brought out the local food map, and I expected to see, you know, how many farms were around Ames, Iowa, which is where I was. And in Iowa, local food means anything in the entire state. So this idea of like a, a 50-mile diet or a 100-mile diet is something that the concept doesn't even exist in places like Ames, Iowa. So we have a, a very, very long road ahead of us. You know, it wasn't always like that. I'm reminded of when I was in Stanton, Virginia, I ended up in a what people sometimes call farm-to-table restaurants in Stanton. It was I got there uh, like they had closed. They had no more services that night, but I convinced them to give me something to eat. So I sat at the bar, and the, the chef owner ended up sitting next to me, and uh, we ended up eating whatever he had left in the kitchen. And uh, I made a comment about a wall that was a, a chalk wall, which he had written all of the local food producers and what he had got from them that was on the menu that night. It was this beautiful handwritten wall. And I said, how awesome is that? That's fantastic. And he said, you know, every time I have to write all those names on the wall and everything that I'm sourcing from these local farmers, it really bums me out. And uh, I was really surprised to hear that. I said, why? And he said, well, when you go to a place, you should just assume that you're eating everything that's local in a place. Um, the fact that I have to write it on a wall means our food system is so backward that we can't simply take for granted that when we go to a place, we're eating food from that place. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a big challenge. How do you have a locally-based food system when everybody buys food based upon price that comes out of an industrial food system? Exactly. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Douglas Gayton. He is the founder, with his wife, Laura Howard, of the Lexicon of Sustainability and the Lexicon of Food. Well, this is a perfect opportunity to talk about policy, because I'm really steeped in how policy influences not only the food that's available to us, but the way in which farmers can grow or produce food and still have some semblance of a quality of life. So I'm hoping that your project will help change food policies. Can you 
help me understand ways in which perhaps you've already seen that happening? Well, I'm reminded of one instance when in California there is been a movement for the past 25 years to protect keystone species in our oceans to not fish out our keystone species. And uh, one individual, Paul Johnson, had a tremendous challenge in explaining all these ideas. He ended up taking an image that we had made to Sacramento, to our state capital here in California, and actually showed an image we had made to explain uh, keystone species and eating down the food chain, as it were. And it was amazing because the actual words from the image were introduced uh, later as an assembly in California. So I think that what we found with our work is that, and as we've seen now, as we make our yearly forays to Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C., to meet with senators and congresspeople who are defining food policy, it's very, very powerful when we can have graphical ways to explain things. I'm not saying that people don't like to read anymore, but if you can graphically depict a solution for someone, then, and if you can explain that, that problem and that solution wrapped in a personal story, in other words, things that are happening to real people, then it's not just abstract policy. Now it's actually policy that's connected to people and policy that can solve you know, their problems. I think that the biggest challenge that we have is that people don't really understand the real cost of cheap food. We have a policy... And, you know, we've become very, very good at it, so we can't even even blame that policy. I guess we should applaud ourselves for meeting the challenges of the post-Second World War economy, which was, you know, this idea of how we're going to feed the world and how we're going to make food more economically. We were incredibly good. We took all these principles of economies of scale that we used in the Second World War, and we applied that to our food system. We centralized everything. We turned it from a food system that was based upon nutrition and values into a food system that's based upon price. And we've made our food incredibly cheap. But our policy, which was totally focused on doing everything possible to ensure that was the case, our policy has backfired in that we have a, a cheap food system that has really resulted in tremendous, tremendous negative health impacts that are all the result of a poor diet. And that, that poor diet is because of cheap food. So when we actually look at how do we like reverse a system that's totally focused on creating food based upon price and turn that into a food system that's based upon food creating according to its nutritional value, then we will really have a totally transformed food system that only comes about through policy. That means policy that ends subsidy for people that produce corn, policy that changes the amount of money that's spent for food in our schools, and there's a whole host of things that we're all working with our partners and with our artworks that we make and the films we make to help educate people so we can actually see the benefits that come from changing the way people eat. I think the beauty of your project is that it starts a conversation and it builds community. And I agree with you with regard to this image-based learning opportunity. I think that especially as we become more digitized and we have 140 characters to work with, we do not read and learn the same way. And so I, I really commend you for having, really putting it all together. But it's that grassroots collection and that community that I think will drive the policy changes that we both want to see. Twitter is very problematic because it gives the illusion that you are actually getting information 
and becoming more knowledgeable. What you're really doing is you're bouncing across the surface of a thousand subjects as opposed to diving deeply into one subject and really understanding it fully and deeply so you can actually do something. We've become a, a culture of people who believe that we know more, but we do less. And so I think that it's the greatest challenge that we face in our project is how do you get people to actually do something with this information? Mm-hmm. I didn't look very carefully at some of the curricula or some of the grassroots community-based work that's springing forth from this. I should warn our listeners that once you go to the Lexicon of Sustainability or the Lexicon of Food, be prepared to stay and visit for a while because it's totally charming and entertaining. But I'm wondering if perhaps I missed an opportunity where you've got people emotionally moved now with your images and your stories And I think when we're at that point, that's when we're really ready to take action. Do you have action steps built into this project? The Lexicon of Food is designed to do exactly that. The Lexicon of Food is a website that is designed to build community around these really powerful ideas and then give people a sense of what they can do in their own lives, with each other, in the workplace, in their schools and classrooms. And I do believe people often ask me about our project, and they say, sometimes dismissively, your project is just a project about words. But (laughs) words can actually change a food system. And I can give you two examples. When consumers learned that there was a growth hormone in their milk, RBST, they opted to actually not buy that milk. Even if that milk that didn't have a growth hormone cost more, They were willing to pay for it because consumers were educated. They learned what RBST was. They were given the opportunity to make purchases based upon their values, and they did so. And as a result, the entire dairy industry had to change its practices. The same thing happened with the cage-free egg. When consumers learn about their food system, when our food system becomes less opaque and more transparent, and when consumers are allowed to buy according to their values, even if it means paying more, Inevitably, they do. Those are the types of challenges that we're trying to give consumers. How can you, given the information that we've just granted you, given you access to all these amazing people and their ideas and their solutions, how can you then, when you buy things, when you make purchases or when you inform others, how can you be an an, an active agent in transforming our food system? That's really our goal with the project. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that because as a dietitian, I see the need so strongly for that kind of change. What I like about your project is that it is very much solution-based. And I remember having a conversation with a filmmaker, and I said, you know, why do you do documentary films? And he said, because the beauty of film is that you can show people a way out. You can give them a guide. And if someone sees the film, they say to themselves, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And I was talking to a farmer not long ago who said, you know, we need a guidebook or a plan on how to get farmers out of these impossible situations where they're losing their shirts, the cost of land, the cost of inputs is so high, but they don't really know how to get out of this system that seems to have shackled them. Well, you know, it's a big challenge. You could say, you know, you could say the same thing about how if you're a hog farmer, you Inevitably, you know, there's so many amazing stories of hog farmers who, you know, had 100, 200 hogs and then a guy down the road 
started raising his indoors, and he had 750, then he had 1,000, then he had 2,000. And you begin to realize if you're in that business, if you're raising hogs, and everybody else around you is moving into a different model and having a much different economic return, well, you have a big problem because you can only sell, in this case, hogs, based upon what the marketplace is willing to bear. And if everyone else is selling at a certain price based upon a method that is consolidated, that has reduced costs, in this case raising them in these windowless warehouses, you can't really continue to raise hogs in a uh, in a reasonable way, in an ethical way, because there would be no marketplace. You would simply would not make any money. You could say the same thing about the use of antibiotics. You could say the same thing about farmers who, who think that they have to grow their crops with uh, like with certain types of pesticides and they get locked into a system. I think that what we find often in our project is you have to present people with another model. You right. have to give them another way of looking at things, but often they don't have access to the information. I can, for example, just a few days ago, uh, earlier this week, I was down in California's Central Valley. It's in the middle of you know one of the worst droughts that these farmers have ever known in their lifetimes, mm-hmm. and water is a very precious commodity. But when you see almond groves and you see how they're irrigated, which is literally using flood irrigation, where they literally open up, they literally open up floodgates and they will put two to three feet of water into an, an almond orchard. It's stunning. It's mind-boggling the amount of water that's that's wasted. But it's because it's the way that things have always been done. But then you see other farms in the same area that are using principles like pressurized irrigation, where they're now pressurizing these water lines, and they're starting to use drip irrigation systems and using a fraction of water. So it's really a case of how can you not only, A, expose more sustainable, more practical, more resilient methods to farmers, and B, get them to understand the the cost, um, that infrastructural, that, that transformation cost, will have benefits for them. So, you know, that cost of converting over from flood irrigation, for example, to something that uses like drip systems, how they can benefit from doing that. But you can see that type of principle across the board. And, you know, many, many studies have shown that if you grow a diversified crop instead of a monoculture, you have infinitely greater opportunities to make much more money per acre than if you were just to grow, you know, 500 acres of corn. So it's it's really also just about how we approach scale. And I'm certainly not saying that we should not have agriculture at scale because, as we all know, agricultural products are a major export crop for this country. And I'm certainly not against having large agriculture systems, but there's a lot that these larger systems can learn from smaller systems, not only in terms of diversification, but also in terms of water and land stewardship, so that they're not growing crops just for their families and for this generation, but for generations to come. Well, I want to thank you very much, both for being my guest today and also for this project that you're working on. I really see this as a way out. This is a project for the future to save us and to lead us to a much healthier environment as well as food system. And I would love to see you present this work not only among food and agriculturalists, but also to the public health community and to medical schools, because I think that we need many of us speaking the same language. So thank you for all that you've done. I want to direct our listeners to both the Lexicon of Sustainability and the Lexicon of Food. That's lexiconofsustainability.com 
and lexiconoffood.com, L-E-X-I-C-O-N. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Douglas. Thank you for this remarkable body of work and for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you.